0: The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Guru's podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Sima Vasa, your host. I'm joined today by David Dixon, who is managing partner of Market Science, as well as Pete Kane, who's executive partner of Market Science. Welcome, you guys.
2: Hi. How are you Sima?
1: It's glad we could do this. I know we're all working remotely, kind of managing multiple different scenarios. So I appreciate you taking the time. All right. So I'd love to kick off our chat, just if you guys could give us a little bit of background on you as obviously professionals in the space, but also what your company does.
2: Sure. I guess I can go first. So name is Dave. I've been working in marketing analytics industry for about 25 years now, I think. I don't really like to think about it too much. Uh, mainly modeling, market mix modeling has been a kind of a focus area, but more generalized, you know, marketing attribution and measurement and trying to understand marketing ROI has definitely been focus of my career. I started out working in doing this kind of work from a media agency back in London a long time ago. I didn't know that media agencies existed before that point, before I graduated with a master's in economics. So it was interesting to find that industry. And I've been working in different kinds of marketing services agencies ever since until about two, three years ago, where we decided to split out and start up on our own, forming our own company. Uh, which is along at that same time that I met up with Pete. And the reason we went independent is, you know, for several different reasons, but one of the big drivers at that time was the ANA releasing, you know, stories about media transparencies and lack thereof, kind of question marks, you know, really raises the whole question mark about Fox in the Hen House again, about agencies doing this kind of measurement. So, you know, at the time it was right to go off and do our own thing, and it was great to do that. And, you know, I think that also is a time now where industry is looking for more transparency in general not just within marketing but more more generally and that's something i know that pete and i feel very strongly about and we can chat a bit more about how we do that for our clients today you know i think the benefit though of having worked 20 odd years in agencies you know a really good understanding of the end user if you will for a lot of this stuff you know how are marketing decisions made in the absence of analytics and then how do they try to use analytics to inform that gives kind of a nice interesting uh, view on that side of things I think Pete's had a different, you know, come to this point through a different sort of set of 20, 25 years. And maybe Pete, you can talk about that.
3: Thanks, Dave. Yeah, so I'm an ex-academic, really. I mean, I did the kind of usual round of kind of PhD 23 years ago now, I think. But in major in economics, really, and econometrics. And I kind of left academia because, well, I guess there's more money in the real world to an extent. <laughs> the main thing is when I got into marketing, I kind of quickly got to grips with the fact that, you know, it's all about economics, really. All of marketing's about how consumers behave. So thinking about marketing analytics as a subject, it's really the economics of consumer behavior, i.e. You know, how markets are, how products are priced and so on, and indeed how then marketing works in tandem with that. And then having worked at a range of companies with that premise, if you like, both store level modellers and the market level modellers and brand modellers and so on throughout the industry for the last 20 odd years or so. About eight years ago, I decided I could do this myself. So I formed my own company, Market Science Consulting. And then about, yeah, as Dave was saying, we've been working together over the last two or three years, fairly relatively, not informally per se, but different companies. And then over the last year or so, year and a half or so, we decided to merge, mainly because we had a very similar ethos, i.e. it's all about economics. And we have a very, not puristic per se, but a very set way of how we think things should be done. And we'll talk a little bit about the modeling later. It's very flexible modeling, but ultimately it's about transparency. It's about you know, making raising awareness, if you like, that it's all about economics of how, how consumers behave, however you package it up. It's about understanding consumers and then fitting the model around that rather than trying to sort of flog some fancy technique, really. And that's essentially, you know, my CV in the industry.
1: It's quite impressive. It's interesting. I have done a lot of interviews, had lots of conversations about... Attribution and really understanding the return on investment of advertising, marketing dollars. And I have not really spoken to people who are in this space who have that economic or econometric background and have applied it to understanding attribution. So I would love to understand your perspective on the problem, if there is a problem, or the challenges today as it relates to attribution.
2: No, we chat a bit about this. I think the it almost starts right there with your question, Seema. You know, people come to attribution with that in mind. I need to attribute, you know, some sales to marketing. It's kind of a measurement thinking. You know, I must measure something. I think the way Pete and I come at it is more from just economic understanding. Oh, let's understand how, you know, how should this marketing be working? How is it working to make somebody go buy something? You know, what's the underlying economic behavior that an economic model is working there? I remember one of my first meetings at a media agency back in the day, I, I made a presentation about how, how to sell detergent. For Unilever, I think it was, I drew demand curves, economic demand curves with price and, and quantity. And at the end of the meeting, my boss at times said, really nice meeting, but don't ever draw those charts again. <laughs> 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 you know, that was way too much. But we just come at it from that kind of economic perspective and, and then go towards the measurement. You know, once we have an understanding of how, consumer, you know, what we think we're measuring from a consumer consumption perspective, then how best should we remodel it?
1: Let me clarify that. So it's really understanding kind of supply and demand first and foremost from a consumer perspective. Is that what you mean when you say looking at it from a consumer behavior perspective?
2: Exactly. It's the economics of demand, you know, once you understand that, and, you know, that's become a lot more complex over the last 20 years. You know, 25 years ago when I was, when, you know, we were learning this stuff in college, it was, you know, the more you charge, the higher the price, the less volume you'll sell. You know, that was the kind of basic demand. But, you know, today we know that things are a lot more complicated and the way marketing is working to shift that demand curve and shift people's perceptions of pricing, either to obscure pricing or, you know, make people less sensitive to it you know, has become a lot more sophisticated. And so therefore, the way we then turn to measure it, it needs to become a lot more sophisticated too. And I think that's where a lot of what Pete's dedicated his career to and the techniques we have today, you know, have grown out of that. But it all goes back to this understanding, well, what's happening to the fundamental economics here?
1: So you're solving a problem though, right? Ultimately, your approach is solving a problem that exists with existing attribution models. I'm making that hypothesis.
3: Well, I mean to kind of supplement that response, I think the one of the things we find with attribution today's point before it's about people focus very much on measurement, but I think you know we we often hear well I've often heard in the past that things like you know very granular multi touch attribution solutions and so on you know which fall into the category of attribution models obviously it's not about incremental, and I find that a very strange statement so if attribution is not about incremental and by incremental we mean. Some kind of causal analysis. If it isn't about that, then what's it about? And I think, you know, for me, the key challenge in our industry today. I mean, people talk a lot about network models, models where you understand search, through some kind of consumer journey, and these buzzwords are bandied about. That's lovely, but ultimately, it all comes down to what extent can you de- demonstrate a causal effect of X and Y? And that's the bottom line to all of everything that we do. And So to try and differentiate what we do, we'll talk a little bit about, I guess, in terms of the modelling structures we talk about in terms of short and long-term effects and so on, maybe a little later. But I mean, the main thrust of everything, if one wants to make or differentiate or do something new in this space, I think as far as we're concerned, certainly is, you know, you have to bring to the fore the causal effects of what you're doing. So particularly things in the digital revolution, right? So, you know, think about something like paid search, you know, domain search is a demand driven thing, you know. So unlike something like a television advert, which is kind of given to you, if you like, you know, you see, or you didn't ask for it, you just see it on the television particularly. We don't have, you know, have to qualify that to a certain extent, but typically with something like paid search, it's very much a demand-driven variable, you know.
1: You, right, meaning the consumer has to type it in and they get the result.
3: Exactly. So it's very much subject to things like selection bias, you know, the idea is to what extent can you really tell what that paid search ad did incrementally over what the consumer would have done anyway. And that kind of underlying selection bias is endemic, particularly in online variables like paid search. So trying to tease that out, i.e. to what extent is your parameter estimate a combination of causation and correlation, is fundamental, because it's all about causation when we talk about allocation. Because, you know, that's what makes the difference, i.e. what is genuinely incremental. And that, I think, is the underlying, you know, should be core to what everyone does these days in marketing analytics.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So you're basically saying what's the lift based on the marketing, advertising activities you're investing in versus not doing any of it. And that's kind of your base level of, of sales or, or results.
3: Yeah. I mean, every, I mean, look, I mean, everyone would say they do this, right? Everyone's everyone. The whole point behind marketing analytics or marketing mixed modeling, let's call it is to try and break a sales series down into a base and incremental. Basically, some kind of long-term effect or long-term evolution in the sales and incremental being some kind of, you know, causal increase over and above that. Now, everyone would say they do that. I think there are a couple of issues there which, you know, we could probably talk about in terms of how the baseline is modeled, but also in terms of, you know, how that causal effect is modeled too. I mean, just having a baseline and splitting your data up into some kind of base is potentially not enough. You have to get that split correct. Part of that is, you know, estimating dynamics or long-term dynamics of the base correctly, which, you know, is very important for long-term effects, which we can talk about. But also that split will be heavily contingent on getting the causation right. So it's very easy just to run a model and say, you know, sales is a function of a bunch of stuff run a regression package and say, right, well, there's my base and there's my incremental rule. That parameter is very much contingent on, well, how causal is it? You know, you know, the idea being that base could be very much higher than you think it is because what you're ascribing to incremental is predominantly correlation. And that's important because clearly when you're thinking about things like optimal allocation, if you have a high degree of selection bias and you say, well, search is doing a lot more than you think it is, you're going to give a result back to the client which says, hey, chuck everything into paid search that's really not the way it should go you really need to think well to what extent is that genuinely causal you know and that's fundamental to everything well it's fundamental to any econometric model really
1: Interesting. When you talked about modeling baseline in the future, right, trying to predict what that looks like, it feels like there's so many inputs you have to factor in, not just, you know, estimating sales, but then there's market forces that you have to factor in as well. And I'm sure other variables I can't even think about, but that seems huge in terms of being able to model that.
3: Yeah, I guess this is what we would commonly call a dimensionality problem in the sense that, you know, sure, you know, models are about you know, trying to represent reality, I mean, you can't model reality, because then that's reality. It's not a model. So you could start with the kind of famous premise that all models are wrong, some are useful. So the question then becomes, well, how far do you disaggregate? So to what extent do you model the individual? Do you model groups? You know, where, is, where does that stop? And then to your point, you know, what else do you put in the model? What, what other variables are going to be there? You know, they're going to be missing variables and how, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That is absolutely true. And it all depends on what levels of data you have, what variables exist. With the basic premise, that you can't really get everything in there. It's almost like you need to be broadly correct rather than absolutely wrong. And I think you know, that touches on what I was going to say a second ago, but touches more on this kind of baseline incremental split. So getting that model structure correct is, is critical for that baseline incremental split to get that correct. And in terms of what we have been trying to do to improve that model specification over the last so many years is the so-called long-term and short-term effects of media, which touches on your point. So let's imagine you have a model which has a very wide specification of variables in it. So you think you've captured demand correctly, and you've also captured that demand at the right level of aggregation. So you may be a client who just wants to look at a macro model of demand at total national level, for total US sales, for example. I'd probably never recommend doing that, but you then want to drill down and say, well, I want to look at demand at DMA level or regional level or whatever level you're looking at. So, that, so so, the question then becomes, how do we look at long-term, short-term, basically? And that then becomes con- contingent on looking at the baseline dynamics, looking at incremental dynamics and how they work together over time. So you can then split apart how short-term media works and then how media then drives baseline evolution over time. That's essentially how we would uh, reconstruct the models anyway.
1: And from your perspective, I guess, who typically brings you in as a partner, like more specifically, which departments do you work with to do this type of modeling and attribution? Because it seems so different than what traditionally, you know, marketing people might use or, or quite frankly, understand.
2: I mean, we still de- definitely work with marketing, the marketing community and will be brought in by them. You know, obviously, now increasingly, clients do have their own marketing analytics departments, so they, they would bring us in. But, you know, I think where we see a lot of our work is, with the chief financial officer and that side of businesses, there's a famous quote that is described to some CFO, no one knows who he, he or she was, but he said, you know, if I up all of the ROI analysis done in my company, it should be three times the size that it is. So, you know, it's this whole idea that, you know, as Pete was saying earlier, you know, if you don't spit out real incremental or real lift from the baseline and do it properly, you mu- you'll tend to overestimate the lift goes back to what we said, if you set out to measure something, you're going to want to measure it. You want to find something, right? So you kind of come back with that bias and you, you try to find stuff, but maybe there isn't, or you find too much of it. So, you know, I think we find that the CFO office and the financial community are prepared to live with perhaps lower ROIs or, you know, whatever it is. But if it's more believable, if it's more, if it makes sense, it's more complete, then they're going to want to use, you know, be more reliant on it to make decisions.
1: And you guys have a case study that you worked with, with Intel. And I believe you, I believe the CFO actually brought you guys in to understand the return on investment on marketing dollars. Can you walk us through a little bit of that case study specifically, you know, what exactly was the question you were trying to answer? And then I know that you look at the short-term network structure and the long-term network network structure. And what were the things that you had to factor in there?
2: I mean, so again, yeah, we were brought in by the CFO who, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, was looking to reduce budgets. And the question was, you know, how and where? So we ran the models. I think the techniques we explain, you know, really aims to try to pass out long and short term. As we explained, does that mean? It means promotional marketing, more short term from much more branding and long term marketing programs and try to understand how those two things work. You know, what we find is long term drivers tend to be more perceptual things. It's what consumers are thinking. Than you know, other things like the economy, because people react to what they think, not necessarily what the level of GDP is. Who knows what GDP even means?
1: Right. That's interesting.
2: <laughs> Once we put those things into the model and understand, well, how is the perception of Intel as a technology leader changing? And how is that changing by different kinds of, you know, important customer segments like the high-end chipset for, you know, small businesses? And what's the power of brand for that segment versus, you know, the mass consumer segment. Um, When we built these models, and you know, uh, get more into details, but, you know, you you start to see where are the opportunities to build a stronger brand and leverage brand investments and look to reduce short-term investments because you have a, you know, when you have a stronger brand and when you have a stronger baseline, that makes all your short-term dollars work harder, dollar for dollar. So you can actually afford to reduce some of the short-term money because you have a stronger base than it's working up and it will still work the same, you know, so you don't lose that much sales when you come to
1: is already there. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
3: I think that's a great summary. Actually, I think that what you mentioned there about short-term and long-term networks is, you know, is pretty much hitting the nail on the head. Really, I mean, what Dave's talking about there really is, you know, we have a model which is the short-term incremental element, and then we also, have, in tandem with that, given the model allows us to extract long-term evolution in the data simultaneously, we have a, a simultaneous model in tandem which allows you to understand the growth of that baseline in a network sense. So you may have, for example, observe long-term sales model from the data, and you then run a separate model for that, which says, okay, well, how does that merge with things like earned media? How does it work with product reviews? How does it work with consumer surveys on brand and Intel image and that kind of thing? Those work in tandem. So you have one model which understands short-term call to action. You have another model which is essentially a kind of, let's call it an equilibrium, it's called a VAR model or a (vector vector correction model, because what it's doing is it's hypothesizing that there are long-term relationships Kind of equilibrium relationships between, you know, how consumers are buying over time in terms of long-run trends, but also what their perceptions of the brand are. How is their own media performing in terms of, you know, product reviews? Those things should exhibit long-term equilibrium relationships. And then, you know, what you're then trying to do is say, well, I'm going to understand how those work variables work with each other. What is it that fuels the baseline? How does media do that? I mean, how does paid media do that? So, you know, those two models in tandem are essentially the approach to understanding both short and long-term in a coherent way, you know, a coherent, uh, measured way, if you like, between the two.
1: And so now we're all facing this pandemic, the crisis in front of us, and how does that impact modelling? Like, this is something that is unprecedented. And so how do you factor that now into understanding the impact or, or you know, of what the future might hold for baseline or even incremental sales?
3: We're certainly going to keep commentricians in work for the next 30 years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's true.
3: <laughs> um, probably more, in fact, actually. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's the pandemic, kind of that kind of effect is, is a classic example of an exogenous shock, if you like, to, to the system. I mean, before it happened, well, you certainly couldn't forecast it. I mean, some people could have done from certain work, but the point of the is it's not incorporated as the model. So, you know, it's one of these things where you have to kind of expose model it now and say, look, you know, I've got a sequence of data. I'm now going to incorporate sales post the event and I'm going to try and incorporate that as I guess what you call a shock dummy variable. You know, but I think Dave and I were discussing this before, you know, you have to distinguish between two different types. One is, you know, a shock, which says, right, here's a you know, here's a here's a dummy shock event which affects demand in this way, which can have short term effects, but can also have long term structural effects. But the point is it's switched on and off. So, but that has to be differentiated in something like Brexit, for example, which is almost like a regime shift, where you know you have a totally different regime, which is always on now. It's, it's not to switch on and off; it's a complete change. Those are two different types of shock, if you like, and the model has to differentiate between those in different ways. They can both have structural effects. So, to your point about how you model base and so so so, so on going forward. Well, you know, they can have negative effects, which could persist forever. You know, and there are different types of ways of modeling that, which both fit into the framework we Mm -hmm. talked
1: about. And from your perspective, you know, we've been talking about attribution and kind of, you know, the waste, if you will, the lack of transparency as it relates to dollars that are being spent on advertising, marketing. Is it getting better? Are we becoming more transparent? Are we becoming wiser in terms of how we're spending our dollars? What's your perspective on that?
2: That's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to know when you, you don't have full optics. You know, things are getting better. Definitely, you know, organizations like the ANA um, putting together committees and, you know, trying to bring more transparency to the trading, the day-to-day trading of digital media. Awareness is definitely a lot higher now about the issues. And so one would hope that that gets better. Actually, I think, interestingly there are aspects here from potentially go from the COVID response with people spending more time at home now, both concern and marketers, people are going to be much more aware of what's happening online as we spend even more time there with our families in proximity. You now this could shift a lot of perceptions even further about uh, the marketing environment and make you know, stronger demand on brands to be more responsible and responsive. So, uh, you know, it's always a game in progress, I guess. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I think this is where understanding the economics is important again. You know, it's talking now about more of a prescriptive model. As we look forward and try to forecast, really like the dark science, dark arts of, uh, of economics, right? We need to come at it from the theory because the data isn't there yet. And it won't be there for a while. As Pete said, you're going to have to wait several months, maybe years to understand how this thing worked. So we've got to think now as economists, more than econometricians or people who measure, but think how is this going to impact hearts and minds of people? and supply chains and so forth, and how will all of that come together to shape the consumer economy going forward? I think that's where getting back to the economics is going to be important as we think about how these things will evolve.
3: No, I completely agree. But I also think, just to finish that point about transparency, I think you know what we often see a lot of clients these days is this concept of trying to bring stuff in-house. So the notion that you know we get results from suppliers, but we need to explain them to our stakeholders with sufficient detail to gain credibility – and I think the notion of in- in-house teams wanting to do some of this stuff themselves is where you know additional transparency comes to the fore because you know they once analysts get their hands on the modeling techniques they can understand where the results come from they can understand you know how results are derived you know so not only from the econometric model because don't forget marketing analytics or marketing its modeling is not just about econometrics per se it's a process right which is like econometrics is just parameter estimation i.e how does how do consumers respond in the, to an impulse? But that's just one part of it. It's you know, it's data analysis, it's data analytics, it's then taking that analysis and analytics in to into translating some, you know, consumable output for a client. I.e., you can't just go to a client and give a bunch of parameter estimates. Yeah, uh, you know, what is your volumetric contribution? You know, how do I allocate? How do I take that output and turn it into some kind of demand response curve? And getting clients in-house data science teams to do that themselves with the software, and part of what we try and do is, is do that, where clients, you know, can take software that we build, so they can then, you know, see where the parameters come from, and they can see where the decompositions of sales come from, and where response codes come from, so they can then, and indeed, in that that was the genesis, of the Intel work, really, you know, and then we can say, well, okay, their stakeholders can believe what they're seeing because they can see precisely where the results came from.
1: Right. It's not a black box. No, exactly. Yeah. Right.
2: The black box. And then I think if it throws up, you know, if it shines a light on an area that doesn't seem to be performing well, you know, that can then lead them to go, well, you know, let's do some experimentation. Let's cut the spend here or change the spend in some way and see what happens. Right. You know, I mean, I think we all modeling is not the end answer. It's really just the starting point that, you know, you need to go forward with a set of experimentation in mind and, you know, take the model insights, try to apply them and, you know, remodel and, and continue to evolve your level of understanding through that kind of you know process.
1: Yeah, I always think that people look for a silver bullet. And you're right, it's probably the beginning of the journey, right? Because then you have to experiment and try different things to see what the impact is.
2: Exactly. You know, and I think that's where, you know, some issue with the MTA industry when it promised to answer everything, when was it five years ago, and didn't, you know, and you could almost tell at the beginning, well, how can it do all of that? You know, just by getting the data on everything isn't really going to be enough. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it certainly helped motivate us and pushed us to, you know, understand these different data sets and integrate them in what we think is the best way possible and continue that process of modeling and experimentation and learning and informing budget decisions.
1: So let me ask you some very practical questions in terms of if somebody were to engage you on a project, how long is the length of that project typically?
2: Yeah, an interesting one. I think usually the first engagement typically is like a three-month thing. Okay. Where understand it. How does it work? What does it look like? How painful is it? You know, is it worth the exercise? And, you know, then it becomes a process of updating and maintaining. In the 25 years I've been in business, I don't think we've ever had a contract last more than one year. I know we have. Okay. But we've had clients who've lasted 15 and still counting, you know, so every year is like starting over, if you will. But... But in a way that keeps us honest and keeps us needing to make the work useful and relevant and, and transparent and all of these other things. Do you
1: guys specialize in specific verticals or is this, do you work across, you know, any
2: vertical? I think we've worked in almost every one, to be honest, you know, especially today where it's beyond not just media, but, you know, customer experience and all of these other areas of investment. Right. You know, it really can be any firm from any. hmm And and frankly, any size as well. We do a lot of work with startups and with, um, you know, companies just pre-IPO and, you know, different stages of their growth curve, you know, all can benefit from some good quality modeling and analytics.
1: David and Pete, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
2: Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Seema. Thank
0: you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to.